Hi, welcome to the Church Split. My name is Will, and we're going to continue on our series on the King James only controversy and what is exactly the problem with it. So the thing is, is at this point, we've we've covered quite a bit of information. We have a two-part series on the history. We have, uh, we talked about textual categories in our last episode, where we kind of just talked about the fact that it's not just Byzantine and Alexandrian, and that's grossly oversimplifying a much more complicated uh, series in order to be able to figure out exactly what it is. Uh, but the thing is, is the next part I want to talk about is uh, of the textual argument are the some of the actual texts. Now, granted, there are over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts alone, so I'm not going to go through each and every single one of those. That would be a very long series. But I think it is important that we do address this. Now, just a few things. If you ever look up the amount of manuscripts that we have. And if you look through during different times where you have certain books that will say certain amounts and you see that amount change, I want you to know something. It is, again, not a great conspiracy. You know, oh, they don't even know how many. See, they don't even consider some of these to actually be texts. No, what it is, is think of it like an ultimate game of memory or puzzles. So you get one manuscript, and through that one manuscript, you know, but let's say it, it lo it's tore out. And then, you know, you, we find other ones and we're constantly finding more. And then all of a sudden we're looking, we're like, wait a minute. These are the same handwriting and they, oh, they fit together. It's like one big puzzle. So it, the two manuscripts went to one manuscript, or this might happen with four or five of them that we find compiled together. So that's why that number fluctuates. It's not a grand conspiracy. It's just as we work toward finding all of these manuscripts, we are, you know, that number is going to be shifting as we find more, and then we find which ones they match with and things like that. So it's not a grand conspiracy. But anyway, so... Again, the, the King James only advocate only sits there and tries to pit just the Alexandrian and Byzantine, and that's not how this works, and that's never how it's never been how it works, nor is it an accurate way to look at things. So the next thing is I want to talk about real quick, briefly, is who came up with those text categories? Well, it's these guys, Westcott and Hort. It's Brooke Foss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort. This is because of how long their names are. We just call them Westcott and Hort. Just It makes it easier. Now, here's the thing. They were the ones who discovered the text types. Like, wait a minute. There's certain ones over here that have certain things, certain ones over here that have certain things. And they started kind of identifying these. Now, uh, the, the King James only advocate will actually unfairly accuse these men because they, had different, they may have had different beliefs and they start really going after them. I don't really think that's fair. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But here's the thing. They were the ones who discovered these text types. And regarding these text types, text types, they stated this. It is our belief that even among the most numerous, unquestionably spurious readings of the New Testament, there are no signs of deliberate falsification of the text for dogmatic purposes. So when they were observing these, they were going, okay, there is really no evidence that this happened on purpose, that these variations were on purpose, or that people were trying to do it just to you know, dupe people or to come up with their own doctrines or dogma. They were saying that a lot of these things were genuine changes that were not intentional. So I think we got to be careful about sitting there just assuming motive. And that's one of the biggest problems with the King James Only Advocates is the fact that they're constantly asserting motive without any evidence. And then they might pull, and I've noticed this, they'll pull false teachings maybe that one of these people had, like, aha, but see, they had this, but then they don't apply it to the people who also did the King James Version. So we'll talk about that more here in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. But then the next one is they found, here's what's funny, is that they, they found that doubtful textual variants, that they, are, they exist in 
all text types, right? I mentioned this before, that there's variations in all text types from Alexandrian to Byzantine, and all the things in between, the Western, the eclectic, things along that nature. But they found that these variations in all text types, the doubtful ones, only exist in 1 60th of the New Testament. That's not a lot. And then, with the major differences, and the major differences, keep in mind, are only one in a thousandth. So this is from Westcott and Hort before they even had half the things we have today. So that, and that's what they were able to observe. So again, it's not like these variations that people oftentimes accuse are these gigantic changes. It's not like suddenly Jesus isn't the Messiah anymore, that, or he wasn't crucified, or that he wasn't born of a virgin. And the, like, the fundamentals of the faith completely exist, and no major changes in the doctrine are there. So anyway, these men as I mentioned before, are often demonized by the King James Only Advocates, uh, Westcott and Hort, and they are plenty of things that we can nitpick about some of their beliefs or teachings, okay? I'm not going to sit there and pretend that that's not the case. However, that is all of the biblical history. All English Bible translations, all the history of the English Bible all exist this way. We treat them with such... So here's the thing. If we did this with all biblical history, and if we treat them, Westcott and Hort, with such scrutiny, then we ought to treat King James I and Erasmus and all others with the same equal prejudice. And at that point, we wouldn't be able to believe a single word because they all believed something wrong or believed something that we would disagree with. The point isn't the fact that what their personal beliefs was, is what was their work and was it truthful and was it accurate. And this is kind of a general overall issue that I see with people in general. If a person is wrong on one thing, they discount everything they teach. And I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's true. Could you imagine if you were wrong on one thing? Think about something like your job, okay? What do you do for work? Let's say you have one thing that you are wrong on on your job. Does that mean the rest of your work is now null and void? No. It means the fact that you may have had an error, right? A human error. And that's the same with these people. I think that is a completely just ridiculous way to look at things. Such a black and white way to look at things. Uh, many of you guys might know, I'm not a Calvinist. I crack a lot of Kel uh, jokes against Calvinism on my page. I have a lot of Calvinist friends. But here's the thing. Dr. James White is a great apologist. He's a great scholar. But here's the thing, he's a Calvinist. And I, I told my friend once, hey, while you're studying this issue, you should look up James White. He has a great commentary on this. And he goes, well, he's a, he's a Calvinist, right? How can, how can I believe in somebody who believes something false? And I was like, okay, whether you agree with him or disagree with him, that's an in-house topic, right? Like Calvinism versus everything else or whatever is an in-house topic. That is something that all Christians believe. We just believe. That's a difference of machinations of the faith, not a difference of the foundations of the faith. So anyway, let's talk about some textual criticism, okay? Let's go ahead and jump into this a little bit. So due to the discovery of different text types, this forced uh, Westcott and Hort to come up with a method on which carries more weight. You know, they're so noticing these differences and these variations, so which one carries more weight? And this led them to uh, a principle that scholars have built upon and widely agree, and that shows trustworthiness throughout history in all areas, and that is Lectio Brevior Potior, which is Latin, okay, because what is with everyone with loving to say everything in Latin anyway, but okay, but it is Latin for the shorter reading is stronger, which is one of the key principles in textual criticism. The principle is based on the widely accepted view that scribes showed more tendency to embellish and harmonize by additions and inclusions than by deletions. So in other words, when it comes to these things that people are more likely to add to the text than they are to remove from the text. I mentioned this 
briefly in my last video. But this is something that so they go, well, Lectio Brevio Potior shows this tendency. So anyway, many demonize them for leading textual criticism and choosing what will and will not be in the Bible. So that's what people will do with the West Kind of Like, well, they were the ones choosing what was going in and what was going out of the Bible. So therefore, they're they do you know, they do not belong uh, being taken seriously. They remove from the word of God and they attack them in this. But what they don't realize is that textual criticism, this very method, has been done all throughout history. Erasmus, who, who compiled that Textus Receptus, he did that with the manuscripts he had, but he had less than a dozen. And then, so he, then that Texas Receptus was turned into the King James Version. Again, textual criticism has always been there. Just because Westcott and Hort were the ones who actually started labeling some of these things and creating categories for some of these things, doesn't mean suddenly that no one ever did it before. Okay, so that's another issue that people do. You know, it's kind of like in history, people will go, well, Calvinism never existed before John Calvin, so therefore shouldn't be taken seriously. Well, meanwhile, they, are, they ignore the history of more of a deterministic theology that has existed for years before that. Or when people go, you know, dispensationalism didn't exist until Darby, when really there's other writings that show a dispensationalist nature to scripture, uh, but it was one person who finally, you know, advocated and named it and labeled it a certain way. So we can't just go, well, this is when we saw that happen in history, they're the ones who did it. No, no, no. Sometimes labels come much later, okay? So it's not fair and it's, again, not factually accurate to do this to Westcott. Hort. It is simply not factually accurate. They're not the only ones who did this. Everyone has done it before them as well. So anyway, the KJV translators did it all, and I mentioned this uh, in part three of, of the series of the texts that they used. Okay, so anyway. So what I wanted to do today was I just wanted to talk about some of the, I wanted to talk about the four great Uncial texts. Remember in my last video, I mentioned the Uncial texts were the ones that were written in capital letters and were more clunky, and these are the ones that get attacked the most by King James only advocates. Like I said, I don't, I'm not going to go sit there and go through all 5,000 New Testament manuscripts and defend each one. I just don't think that's going to be productive, nor do I have enough time for that. So this is something that you'll have to research yourself. But these are the main ones that people tend to attack. So these are the ones that I want to bring to you to help bring some clarification. So before we jump into, you know, all these other parts, uh, especially the objections part of this series, I want to make sure I bring in some common, clarif some co clarification for some common accusations by King James Only Advocates. And here's the thing. One thing I've noticed when talking to some of these people is that they honestly don't know. They have been taught these things. And of course, if you've been taught these things by someone you trust, you are going to listen to them. And so some of these accusations, most of these people, and if you are one of them, if you are a King James Only Advocate, you have been taught a certain thing that may not have been accurate. Have you ever wondered, am I wrong? That's why I'm here. I'm using the ESV primarily now, but I also love the King James Version, but I was a King James only advocate myself until I studied the history and the facts of it, and then I realized it doesn't actually hold up and that things I had been taught is wrong. So one of the things we, you know, we never want to ask that question, what if I'm wrong? But I have found that there's more and more freedom in that and there's more and more honesty in that. So, and it helps me to 
make sure I sharpen my edge all the time. So anyway, the first one is the most debated one and the most accused one, so I may as well get this one out of the way. This is the one I'll spend the most time on probably. This is Codex Sinaiticus. Codex Sinaiticus is one of the four great Uncial codices, and we found, and this has been in the mid fourth century, okay? And this is, of course, an Alexandrian text type. So, of course, it's no surprise that King James only advocates attack this, but Codex Sinaiticus is definitely the one that gets attacked the most. Uh, one of the accusations that comes up is that it was found in a trash can because it was garbage, right? Like, oh, it was so corrupt, it was so bad, they threw it away, and this guy who found it, it you know, he found it in a trash can. I hear this all the time by King James only advocates. The thing is, is that this is not true, and it is a gross simplification of what actually happened, and it actually is not taken into account all the actual eyewitness statements of this situation. And you can actually look it up. There, You can find the, the Tischendorf who found this codex. You could if we look up his entire recollection of the event, and you will find that it wasn't a trash can. And I'm going to talk about that here. So Tischendorf, the guy who found it, he worked for 15 years to get his hands on this because the monastery that he was that it was at essentially wouldn't give it up. It's a very complicated thing. I mean, again, this spans 15 years. You can go in there, read all the different things that happened, but I'm just gonna try to give you like the bullet point simplifications here, okay? So he, the, the thing is, is that only a few of the pages were found in a bucket. And that is what people call the trash can. A few of the pages, now remember, it's this bigger manuscript, a few of the pages were found in the bucket. And in fact, basically, uh, he was sitting there and he's noticed there's these papers and he pulls them out in this bucket and he looks and he goes, oh my word, these are, this is the New Testament. And he wanted to take them back. But problem is that they were like, well, why do you want it, essentially? And it turned into this whole thing where they don't want to give it up. He knew what it was. Once they realized the value of it, they changed it. So here's the thing. When you look at the accounts, one account says it was uh, the bucket that was there was uh, says it was used for fire kindling. And the whole point, and that's where people call the trash can, the thing is, is that no, uh, the, so for the kindling, what it was, it was all pages of any manuscripts in the monastery were put in this bucket for fire kindling when they were just too dried up and busted up and they're beyond repair. So oftentimes what they would do is that they would take the, these irreparable pages and they would put it in there and they'd use that as fire kindling. Now, what they would do before they would do that is they would actually copy that before they just throw it in the bucket and then they would put it back into the book or the manuscript. So in other words, they, you know, they'd, make, they'd make a new one and they put it in there, kind of repair it, and then they took the old one that was too old and they'd burn it. That's what was happening. Now, granted, that's one account and that is what uh, you know, Tischendorf said, but one, another account, which is more from the monastery, says it was, for, uh, it was the repair bucket and it was used to transport them around to repair them and treat them and put them back in their book. So the one, one account says a fire kindling that was meant to you know, copy and repair and then use for kindling um, after they already did that. Or they were, uh, it was a bucket that was used to transport around the monastery as they were repairing those particular pages themselves. But either way, it wasn't a trash can. It wasn't a trash can. And, it is, and not only is that cru a crude way to put it, but it's actually a gross exaggeration. And you have to avoid that when we're trying to be historically honest. It is a gross exaggera exaggeration, and I would even go as far to say it's dishonest to say so. Now granted, if you've heard that your entire life, you might not know that. But some of these people who teach this and promulgate this do know better. And they have looked into this enough, and then they grossly exaggerate it, crudely exaggerate it, and then they're dishonest with it. So. 
Be careful on who you listen to. That is my whole point here. I keep smacking my mic with my chin and it's driving me nuts, I'm sorry. But this sort of thing, when we really, really do this, when we sit there and grossly uh, exaggerate things, it only hurts our defense of scriptures. It only hurts our way to defend the Bible. And since, you know, and since we lie, with no historical sources, and that's what this is. It's lying, it's an exaggeration, no historical source, and then we pro promulgate non-truths. It hurts our way to defend scriptures. And it hurts our way to defend Christianity because we can't even agree on normal history. And history that has actual written accounts, again, you can look it up, it's not hard. Look up Tischendorf's account. Um, anyway, so many of the variants in uh, variants of such Greek texts is really uh, in the Hebrew. So let me, let me talk about this. So many of the variants of such Greek text, so in like things like Codex Sinaiticus in this particular manuscript, much of the variants of such things are actually in the Hebrew text. So these were Greek texts from both the Old and the New Testament right now though. That's what this was. You know, they, they were Greek texts from the Old and New Testament. A lot of people look at the Old Testament and say it was only written in Hebrew, but eventually the rabbis and stuff and scribes back in the day translated their Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek and we call this the Septuagint usually. And that is so that way people could read it because many people in their society couldn't read ancient Hebrew and they had to change it to Koine Greek. So that way people could read it. Uh, again, we see that even the Hebrews were changing things to a modern uh, language so that way people can read it, constantly translating. Uh, however, oftentimes modern translation advocates are wrongly accused of worshiping this text. Uh, and that's what a lot of people do. They'll go, well, you just, you love your Codex Sinaiticus and that's your problem. No, that's, that's not what's happening. Uh, we, you know, it's not the fact that we just worship Codex Sinaiticus. What we're saying is to stop demonizing one particular manuscript and sitting there saying it is, you know, it is unhelpful and that it is not a good source. In fact, it is, and it's old, it's very old. The Codex Sinaiticus is extremely old. So ironic, which I find, um, What's funny is that, you know, they say that we worship one text, and I find this really ironic from people who would actually die on the hill of their own text. I mean, think about that. They're like, oh, you just want to worship your text. That's the Codex Sinaiticus. You just want to worship it. And meanwhile, you're practically worshiping the Texas Receptus or the King James. You're holding up, and that's the problem, is that they're looking at their opposition as having the same lens that they have. You know, well, we only focus on this, and ours has more statements in it. You only focus on that one, and yours has less statements in it. You're ours is better. And it's like, no, we use Codex Sinaiticus. That is not the only codex we use, and it's not the only manuscript that is used in modern translations. That is another promulgated lie. Codex Sinaiticus is not the only one used, okay? So, and I'm going to quote James White here uh, as far as what he said. So the thing is, a lot of people demonize Codex Sinaiticus because it has some of these, these variations, some of these errors. But James White says, Codex Sinaiticus is not nearly as bad as its enemies would say, nor as as good as Tischendorf or others wished. So his whole thing here is, hey, it's not this horrible text as these people accuse it of, but it's also not like, you know, the great holy grail of manuscripts either. Tischendorf thought it would be, and it's just not, okay? When we compare it to the other texts, we see the issues. But those who often demonize it as corrupt, they mean that it differs from their traditional text, and that's really what it is. The traditional text, maybe their Textus Receptus, maybe their King James, maybe the Byzantine, whatever, when they demonize it as corrupt, what they're saying is that it differs from their traditional text. 
However, one must first ask, which is most accurate? Okay, not your traditional text, not their traditional text. Which one is the closest to the original writing? That is the question. And how do we find that? And guess what? We do that through comparison of multiple manuscripts. So anyway, that's why Codex Sinaiticus is important because it's one of those texts that do weigh in on what the originals said. So Sinaiticus, like all other texts, has scribal errors, okay? It has scribal errors. Every text does, even the Textus Receptus. In fact, there are, there are readings in the Textus Receptus, which I'll get into in my uh, objections uh, discussion in this series. There are things in the Textus Receptus that only the Textus Receptus reads as. And remember, it's a compilation text. It's not even one of the original old copy manuscripts or papyries. It is literally its own thing that was compiled later. And it has its own unique readings. So, Anyway, this is going to take, so Sinaiticus, like all our texts, has scribal errors, and this is going to naturally take place in any copies uh, that take place over centuries of copies. So copies upon copies upon copies is always going to create variations. See, the thing is, when we think God preserving his word, we don't think of the human aspect of it, that humans do err. And we are going to have errors. So as we go through, we're going to have these. But the best part about it is we have so many copies that we can figure out what the original writings was and where the errors were. And like I mentioned before, uh, Westcott and Hort noticed that they were a minuscule amount that had these variations. And those variations never really changed anything major. And they said the only major ones were one in a thousandth. But even in those one in a thousandth, there are, most of those have clarification statements elsewhere in those manuscripts. So it's really no big deal. So anyway. There isn't a single manuscript without some form of scribal error. And that is something that you, we just have to come to terms with, okay? It is not like God just preserved one particular manuscript through all the ages that's perfect and flawless, okay? This, not one. So to demonize one for error and not the other for error is highly contradictory and shows a bias to only one side. And as soon as you start ignoring facts on your side to accuse the other side, that's when you've, you've fallen into a very bad blunder, okay? You fell to the classic blunder, okay? It, that is what you're doing. You are, you are seeing and perceiving through only your bias and not through the lens of truth. So. Always be careful before you demonize something. And as we continue, before we are wrought with anger and fear at these variances, okay? Because that's the thing. People are either angry, oh, how dare you mention these, or they get scared, oh my goodness, how do we really truly know what God really said? We should first try to understand why these variants were there in the first place. Why were they there in the first place at all? So, the claims of people trying to corrupt the Bible are simply unfounded. People trying to corrupt it, that's simply unfounded. And this is merely drawing a conclusion on a final product and no other, no other part, no other way of doing it. It's just we have the conclusion and then you just assert a motive. So this is judging a motivation and that is something we are told not to do. And so anyway, Codex Sinaiticus is not the grand holy grail of all codexes, but it's also not this horrible demonized thing. When you actually look at it, it just like everything else, it has variances. And some of these variances happen very naturally, but I'm going to talk about that a bit later. So the next one that gets demonized often is Codex Vaticanus. And you can imagine that Codex Vaticanus with a name like Vatican, is sounding like the Vatican, sounding very Catholic. Uh, many Protestants, uh, especially the very fundamental and the fringe groups who are very King James only, would demonize this because like, it's from the Vatican. Well, newsflash, most of your manuscripts are and have been preserved 
by the Catholic Church. Uh, in fact, remember Erasmus, who put together the Texas Receptus, was Catholic. So anyway, just, it's just funny how some, again, we, we cherry pick history and we ought not to do that. It was preserved in the Vatican Library, hence the name, and this doesn't make it only Catholic, by the way. Just because it's preserved there doesn't mean that's what it is, and that, again, geography, geographical location does not necessarily create theological location, okay? That's, that, that's just silly, and that's an error that we tend to make. So this was a text that was the result of Erasmus's correspondence with the Vatican, okay? So he's corresponding with them, they're writing back and forth, and with various different texts and manuscripts, and eventually it was all preserved. I'm given a kind of a crude like way to put this, but uh, it, you know, put it together and now it's preserved there. So, so the author of the Textus Receptus basically had his hand in this text. Uh, however, it was found to have errors in it along with, shocker, every other text. So many uh, say this is uh, you know, a corrupt Alexandrian text, but this is merely the category it got stuffed in on. Again, we stuff things in things where they have particular readings in these different categories, Alexandrian, Byzantine, Western, eclectic, whatever. Um, so anyway, and remember, just because it's called Alexandrian text type does not necessarily mean it was found in Alexandria, because remember, they found Alexandrian texts all the way out in Syria, which is not West, like Alexandria's. Syria is much more to the east. So anyway, uh, the, the New Testament is largely Alexandrian though, and so it gets called that. So in so again, remember there's Greek written in these codexes I'm mentioning. There's Greek Old Testaments and Greek New Testaments. Uh, the New Testament is largely Alexandrian here. So when you're looking at the reading of the Codex Vaticanus, it reads most like the Alexandrian text, so it gets put in the Alexandrian category, but that does not mean it is solely exclusively an Alexandrian reading. It's just saying it, it it more favors that side. So, however, the Old Testament varies a lot with a Texas Receptus influence. I'm going to say that again. In the Codex Vaticanus, the Old Testament varies a lot with a Texas Receptus influence. So the Old Testament is a bit more TR and Byzantine, and the New Testament is a bit more Alexandrian. You guys see the thing here? It's not as black and white as everyone wants to make it out to be. And especially in the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel is heavily Texas Receptus in origin. But anyway, this refutes the ultimate argumentation of attempting to label things so black and white. When you're looking at the Codex Vaticanus and you're going, that's an Alexandrian text, and you're trying to, you know, black and white that bad boy, guess what? Those, whenever you come in uh, to history with a black and white lens, you're always going to get slapped with the truth at, in the end, or you're just going to ignore the truth because it, history rarely is so black and white. So this refutes that argument. It really does. It's not as black and white as when people want to make it out to be. Um, and so here's the thing. This also reads similarly, similarly to Papyrus 75, another amazing manuscript that would be denied by said advocates. Now here's the thing. Uh, when you're looking into this, I also want to give you a heads up. They sometimes just, not all of them have a fan fancy name like Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. Not all of them have that. Sometimes they have a, what they call a papyri, which is basically a manuscript or a piece of one, uh, and they just number them. Papyrus number one, papyrus number two, and this one reads very similarly to Papyrus 75, another amazing manuscript, okay? But in fact, many discovered manuscripts today would be rejected by King James-only advocates. And many of the oldest ones we have would be rejected. In fact, the vast majority, if not all of them, by many King James-only advocates would reject the oldest manuscripts. And that, as soon as you start rejecting some of the oldest manuscripts and you start saying, nope, those are all bad, you are stumbling in very, very wishy-washy territory historically. Because again, 
Historians agree that the older ones are always more reliable than the newer ones, and that makes sense. I mean, if you had, if you wrote a journal, and you waited, and people copied it for a thousand years, do you? Th and people are going to add to it most likely, right? Or well, let's say this: you write a journal, and somebody copies that journal, and we have the copy of that journal from 30 years later. But then we have some from a thousand years later. Which one do you think is going to be most accurate? The one closest to the source or the ones furthest away? Probably the one closest to the source, right? In fact, it could be very easily be word for word. And we actually have that pretty well confirmed that, yeah, these are word for word. We got these very well structured and we can compare. So anyway, Codex Alexandrinus. Wow, could not get that out. Codex Alexandrinus, one of the other four great Uncial texts. And this is one of the oldest Greek texts that we have available today. It, its names derives from where it was kept, which is, of course, Alexandria. It went from Alexandria, though, to Constantinople. Okay, so it was kept there. It was kept in Alexandria, and then it was moved to Constantinople. Okay, important. So because of where it was located and its, na and its name, it often gets lumped in with another corrupt Alexandrian text. However, scholars actually have a hard time placing it in a specific category. Remember the eclectic or text where they kind of pull from everything or the other ones, what is it, the Caesarean, which they go, I don't know. <laughs> uh, this one actually is just because it's found there does, again, geogra geogra geographical location does not always mean that it is of that. Remember, because it's writing style. We're talking writing style, not geographical location. So. Again, it, many people look at it as a corrupt Alexandrian text, but actually scholars have a hard time placing it in any specific category. The Gospels contain the Byzantine text type, for example, and the, these are actually the oldest strand of the Byzantine text type. So when we're looking at the Byzantine, the oldest Gospel Byzantine text type is found in the, Alex, what is it, Alexandrinus, right? Yeah, <laughs> I always get that mixed up. I, always, I keep wanting to call it Alexandrinus. Alexandris, and I don't know why. But anyway, so this is actually the oldest text type and the oldest strand of the Byzantine Gospels, okay? Oh, and what's funny is that those who are majority text or Byzantine text only want to reject this. And it's like, well, no, this is the oldest ones of your text type that you prefer. Isn't that, shouldn't this kind of be a a valuable asset to you? I just find that weird. So anyway, then the rest of the New Testament is very Alexandrian in nature, but also seems to have a bit of the Western text type influences. So again, they're not all black and white. We just put these categories here to help us understand or help us categorize some things for further study. Anyway, and then the book of Revelation is considered the best from this codex and many parts of the Old Testament as well. This, in many ways, uh, its areas resembles Codex Ephraimi, which I'm going to talk about here in a minute. Um, so the thing is, so in the, the book of Revelation, it's considered the best from this codex. And the, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but the book of Revelation is actually one of the hardest books for people to find manuscripts of. It's the, probably the, the least promulgated one. Is the, it's one of the hardest ones that people couldn't find. Erasmus couldn't find it when he was trying to make the Texas Receptus. Uh, he couldn't find a good copy. So the very last portion of Revelation, he had to reverse translate from the Latin Vulgate. The book of Revelation is hard. In this one, in this particular codex, this one is where we have the best copy of the book of Revelation. And so it's highly valuable. So any, anyway, again, it is not black and white. 
And then we have Codex Ephraimi, okay? Or Ephraimi, I don't know how you wanna say this, I've heard it both ways, whatever. Ephraimi, uh, I guess that's what I'm gonna say. Uh, but is one of, is this one has a bit of untold history, okay? It's missing some books like Second Thessalonians, it doesn't really have that, and we don't know really why. <laughs> some say it is because there wasn't one available at the time, uh, so it just didn't get included, and uh, another says it is for theological reasons. Bottom line is we don't know, but again, if you say it, they left Second Thessalonians out or other books out because of theological reasons, again, you're asserting motive where we don't have evidence. And again, Christians, we really ought not to assert motive without evidence. Anyway, it is a handmade parchment and it was once rinsed off to make room for another writing. Remember we mentioned that, the Alexandrian text, they'd rinse it off and scrape it off in order to be able to rewrite on top of it. So we see that there's evidence of that happening with this codex. So again, not so black and white. The New Testament is primarily Alexandrian in this though. So it, now it's like flip-flop of the last one where the last New Testament was primary, the gospels I should say were strongly Byzantine, this one is strongly Alexandrian in the New Testament, although the strength and character of his testimony varies from book to book. So it really just, it varies a lot in the in, in there on which text type it falls under. Um, and the strength and character of the testimony varies from book to book. It is a weak Byzantine influence in Matthew, and it is weak Alexandrian witness in Mark. So... <laughs> It kind of varies on both. And it has a strong Alexandrian witness in John. So in Luke, its textual character is very unclear and it is, it's kind of got a little bit, you know, shifts a lot. Uh, so Westcott and Hort classified it as mixed. Okay, so this would almost be considered eclectic probably, um, but Herman von Sodden classified as Alexandrian text type, so people have put it in different categories. That's why I said like the categories thing isn't this black and white issue. It, they're used as labels to help clarify some things or to help just kind of put it somewhere for a point of reference, but it varies depending on which scholar goes where. So anyway, as you can see, as I've mentioned this, it is not merely just this chunk of manuscripts is A or B, right? It's like, okay, the, the uh, so Sinaiticus is this one, Vaticanus is that one, Alexandrinus is this one. It is not as black and white. It is not just that they fit under A category or B category. They kind of mix around because again, to which would be normal if you're having multiple copies upon copies upon copies going out that they would, that some of the influences might cross paths. But the best part about it is that we have thousands to compare to and we can go all the way back to the earliest ones and the latest ones and compare everything in between and where they came from and who said what and where and how it was copied and go, oh, we can figure out the original writing here. It's like a giant puzzle. Like think about it like a detective, you know? Detectives are given a huge amount of events that take place. And people go, well, you can't figure out exactly, you know, to sit there and say you can't figure out exactly what happened based on these manuscripts is basically saying that a detective can't put together a series of events based on basic evidence to figure out what, it, what really happened. That's all this is. It's basically historical uh, detective work. That's what it is. That's all this is. So anyway, it's hardly as black and white as people want to make it out to be, but one but one thing to be exampled and poured over is to just study this and look into this. And it is not black and white, but something to be thought through and studied and carefully paid attention to. So anyway, these are just four of 
of the great Uncial texts. There are others such as Codex Beze and tons of others. There are over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, just in Greek. There are over 10,000 Latin manuscripts and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, okay? Such as Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopian. Ethiopic, Coptic, Armenian, and tons and tons of others, including Hebrew and also um, Aramaic. We have so many languages that these are all preserved and that we can compare to. So again, we have over 5,800 completed Greek manuscripts alone and 10,000 Latin and not including, we're not even getting into all the others. So these numbers change regularly as mentioned before though. So when you're looking these up, you're gonna see these numbers shift around because again, they're playing puzzles with these, okay? So that kind of makes sense. And now, just so we're clear, a lot of the variations as mentioned before are punctuation maybe in nature or a misspelling of a word. And this is basically what happens. I might talk about this in a separate video, but I'm just gonna briefly talk about it here. It's basically, if you're copying back and forth between two pages, what oftentimes happens that they would, so let's say there's two words with a similar ending, right? So uh, let's say completed, fragmented manuscripts, okay? Completed, fragmented, and so they both have a, you know, T-E-D at the end. So what happens is if you're over here and you're copying T-E-D, when you move your head back, you're gonna just see the T-E-D and you're gonna move on. So what can happen is that that second word can get accidentally deleted because you are just going by the last, your eyes caught the last couple letters of the other word and you just kind of went back and you accidentally omitted a couple words in between. And this is pretty normal. Like if you've ever tried to copy something, you might look back and go, oh my word, I missed like two words. How did I do that? And that's because you saw a word similar here, and when you shifted back over here, your eyes just drifted to the to some of the letters familiar in that one word, and you didn't read the whole word. So this happens, and that's okay, because we have other texts that shows where they were not to be omitted, because where one may have omitted it by accident, you know, we have a hundred or two hundred more that didn't omit that statement. So we can make the comparisons pretty clearly, and then we can we can judge by the age of these manuscripts as well, uh, which one bears more weight, and which one's added clarification statements, uh, which is normal for scribes. And scribes have done this for ages. You know, they add clarification statements. Uh, there's actually whole parts in the Texas Receptus that you know has a, a beginning portion of. Uh, of a passage, and then it'll kind of go through maybe a parable of Jesus or something, and then at the end, it'll say that same clarification statement at the beginning, even though it was never there at the end in any manuscript. They just added it there for clarification. So again, not black and white, not what the King James Only Advocates teach, and it is not factual. And this isn't, again, this isn't me going, I hate the Texas Receptus. I hate the King James. No, the King James was incredible. Less than a dozen manuscripts created an amazing piece. And there was a lot of translation stuff that happened there. And the Anglicans did a pretty great job. But again, to sit there and go, Westcott and Hort had wrong theological positions while not holding the Anglican translators of the King James or uh, or King James I himself to the same standard. Well, they had theological theologically wrong positions as well, but you don't hold them to the same standard. So, because they're, so if they're wrong, your text is still okay, but if they're wrong, their text is not okay? That doesn't make sense. Also, to sit there and deny thousands of manuscripts of historical history here, just of, of absolute gravity to the preservation of God's word, is almost a slap in the face. So, guys, I want you to consider something here when we're talking about this. Consider the fact that, am I wrong? But not just am I wrong, but then think, wow, 
God didn't just preserve his word in a singular copy. He preserved his word exponentially in thousands of manuscripts. So that way no one could burn it. No one could destroy it. He preserved his word. You couldn't eat. It was like a bunch of termites. They couldn't get rid of them. No matter how much they were persecuted, people could not get rid of their, their writings because it just exploded. And God left, preserved so many manuscripts that were able to rebuild it. How awesome is that? That is That shows more sovereignty than just preserving a singular manuscript over time. It just, it just does. It is so much, and also it means that we actually have to study and put effort in to, to God's word, which goes into study to you know, show yourself approved unto God. We ought to study. We ought to do these things. Scribes have done this for ages. Rabbis did this for ages before that. This is textual history. And it's so awesome to, be, to see it actually come and blossom into full fruition and being able to look at it and go, wow, God truly did preserve his word. But he didn't just preserve his word a little. He preserved his word exponentially. So anyway, these are just four of thousands of manuscripts we could talk about, but I only wanted to focus on some of the ones that get attacked the most and show how it's not quite as black and white as many would like you to see, and that's to show the fact that it is actually wrong history that many, many King James Only advocates have been taught, and maybe you've been deceived, and I don't want you to be bitter about being deceived. I don't want you to be angry at me for trying to pop your bubble or saying that I'm a heretic. I just want us to consider the fact that maybe we've been, that maybe we've been wrong, that maybe we've been deceived. And that's the thing, deceived is different than you know deceiving. Uh, if someone can, sometimes wrongfully deceives us, some people purposely deceive us. Some people just aren't intellectually honest either. And that's not good. We as Christians ought to be. So anyway, I hope this helped bring some clarification. I really think uh, history shows the fact that some people always tend to gravitate toward a singular uh, book because they want that singular book to be the only authority. And it's a very easy stance to take. You know, people did it before with, um, with the Latin Vulgate. People did it with the Geneva Bible. People have done it with the King James Bible. We've seen that all throughout history, where they held on to one and rejected all the moderns. And they held on to one and rejected all the moderns. And they held on to one and rejected all the moderns. Um, it's easy to do. I, I see why people do it in history, because you build your entire theological position maybe on that one thing, and you see a variation somewhere, and you freak out. But honestly, guys, it's just the history is the Achilles heel of the King James Only movement. It, it really is. Uh, you know, everyone's done that where they've held onto a traditional manuscript, and then also the fact that they try to create such a black and white issue over manuscript studies is not accurate. And it's just something that actually does more detriment, I think, to the cause than anything. So, if we want to be able to, pre if we also, if we want to be able to defend the preservation of scriptures, we need to be able to take the preservation of scriptures as a whole, and not just as a slice or a sliver of what exists. Because eventually, if you just only hold the Byzantine text, you can only go back so so many years before you run into a dead end in the dates, and then you're ignoring the Alexandrian, which are the oldest ones, which carry a lot of weight and therefore a lot of authority and also the ability to show that this has been preserved through the ages. But if you ignore that and you condemn it, you can only go back so far into date, which really, really hampers your ability to defend the infallibility of scriptures. And we're going to talk more about that as we get into the objections videos. But anyway, I hope this video was helpful for you, maybe help bring some clarification. The last video I wanted to just mention the categories and kind of talk about what creates those categories. And in this video, I really wanted to just kind of dig into some of these texts and how they get labeled in those. So hope this was helpful. Hopefully I was was clear in my presentation. And uh, anyway, thank you for watching. I know these are long, but I think it's worth the study. But anyway, my name is Will, and this has been The Church Split.